Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you again. Thanks for joining us this morning for worship here at the Vista. Um, I want to just kind of say we're very grateful for uh, Jared and Amy uh, leading us in worship this morning. Uh, Jordan is out this week. He'll be back next week. But I'm always reminded of all the just talented people. Indefinitely, in my model, what it could look like for the church to move beyond a don't ask, don't tell approach to human sexuality. Because as any of you who have kids know, um, when you give your kids, you know, like the talk, uh, the goal of the talk is not just the community. Stay awake for your pizza. So it was a good, a good job, a good week by us. Hope you had a great week as well. That has nothing to do with my sermon today. Just thought I'd share that. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing in our series, Dear Church, Letters and Lessons from the Churches of Revelation. So this week we're launching into chapter 3. We're looking at the church in Sardis. And again, these are letters uh, written essentially uh, by Jesus, the words of Jesus to the churches. They were penned by uh, the apostle John, who was a really old man, um, exiled to this island called Patmos. And Jesus is writing to these churches, um, giving them some specific uh, things they need, to, they need to correct, they need to work on. In some places, encouraging them where they're doing some things well and doing some things right. And there's a lot I think we can learn from the church in Sardis, um, hopefully some really good lessons for us as a church. And so we'll jump in, Revelation chapter 3, I'll begin in verse 1, and we'll talk about this church today um, that is in Sardis. And so here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so again, a lot of imagery in Revelation, um, these, uh, the seven stars are the churches. Uh, don't get hung up on the seven spirits of God. There's a couple different ideas as to what they're talking about specifically. Um, but essentially, seven was the number of fullness or completeness. And so John's simply talking about the fullness of God, the fullness of the spirit, uh, the spirit of God. So this is Jesus himself that is writing here with authority and power. And here's what he says, um, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Ouch, right? Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet... You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the problem in Sardis is that they were a dead church. They were a dead church. There's, there's no way to make this out to be a compliment, right? Like you're a dead church. And so if you know the pattern, a lot of times Jesus will write in these churches, he's, he's commending them for something that they're doing well or something that they're getting right, and then he moves into his criticism of them. And that's sort of the pattern in a lot of the letters. Then there's a few churches where he actually doesn't have any criticisms. It's just encouragement. You're, you're persecuted. I, I hear you. I see you. Stay strong. And he's trying to encourage them. But in Sardis, there, there's not even anything he commends them for. He just launches right into, you're dead. <laughs> like, you're, you're a dead church. And this is like one of the greatest fears, I think, of, of any pastor. I think anybody, nobody wants to be a part of a dead church, right? Nobody wants to be a part of a dead church. 
We want to be a part of churches that are growing and thriving and they're alive and they're, they're on mission and they're doing stuff. Like none of, you, none of you came here hoping to be a part of a dead church. Those are the churches you avoid, not the churches you seek out. And so I think the question for us is how do we avoid becoming Sardis, right? How do we avoid becoming this church? I mean, it's not something that happens overnight. I don't, I don't think, I mean, by the time of the writing of Revelation, these churches are decades old. So it's not something that, that just happened overnight, and it, it's not something that happens overnight in churches today as well. Like, I don't, I don't literally lose sleep at night wondering if anybody's going to show up to church on Sunday anymore. There was a day that I did, by the way. Like, early on, I was like, man, I sure hope there's people there tomorrow. But, but now we're to a place where I don't literally go, man, I don't think anyone's coming to church. I, I don't think we're not going to be able to pay our bills next week, right? You know, I, like I think we're budget-wise, we're, we're, doing, we're doing fine. I don't, I don't worry about our missions and our ministries just stopping on a dime. And, and, and I don't worry, I don't literally lose sleep at night thinking about those things. But what I do think about is 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, what kind of church will we be? What kind of impact will we have? What will we be known for in our city, in our community? Um, what kind of lives are going to be impacted by the gospel and the ministries of the church down the road? And again, because becoming a dead church isn't something that just happens overnight. It, it, it happens even subtly over time. You look at the, the church in Sardis, and, and this is what's particularly terrifying, I think, about the text is they were apparently dead and didn't even realize they were dead. Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're not. And that's kind of scary, isn't it? Like you can be a dead church and not even know that you're a dead church. You get people that are basically, it says, um, your works are not complete. So you've got people that are sort of going through the motions of church. They're going through the motions of religiosity. They've been, um, as I've heard it said, conformed to a pattern of religion but they've never been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. There's no real pursuit. There's no real relationship with Jesus. It's just checking some spiritual boxes, right? I go to church, check. I read my little devotional book every now and then, check. May give a little bit every now and then if I happen to have some extra, check. I might even serve if they, they beg me enough. I mean, I don't find any joy in it, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do it, check. So we can kind of go, all right, yay me, did my church thing. That's what's going on in Sardis. It's a bunch of people that they look really neat, really clean, really tidy. They've kind of cleaned things up, right? But there's no life. There's just no life. There's no, there's no pursuit of Jesus. There's no love and affection for Jesus. It's a little bit like the church in Ephesus where we started. No love and affection for Christ, just going through the motions. And what Jesus says there in verse 2 is, I have not found your works complete. In other words, your checklists don't impress me. Your checklists are not what I'm after. It's eerily similar to what he said to his people in the Old Testament when his people were sort of bringing their sacrifices to the priest and going through the motions, but he said, your hearts are far from me. That's essentially what's happened in Sardis. People going through the motions, checking the boxes, but there's no life, there's no spirit, and they're not even aware of it. So again, the question for us today is, how do we know... Uh, how do we know we're becoming Sardis? Like how do we know, how do we avoid the pitfalls and the snares? What sort of sets those wheels in motion to us becoming a church like this? Because I think I speak for all of us when I say nobody wants to be the church in Sardis. Nobody wants to become that. And so what we've got to do is we've got to recognize some things that happen along the way so we can avoid those. And so uh, this morning in the time we have left, um, I've just kind of pointed out some things that I think 
we need to be on guard about, we need to be aware of. And so uh, one of the ways we know, how do we know we're in danger of becoming a dead church? How do we know? And so uh, the first one is this. We're in danger of becoming a dead church when the gospel gets forgotten. When the gospel gets forgotten. That's what he says in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. This is a church that just forgot the, the basic. They forgot the gospel. They forgot the truth of the gospel, what it's all about, right? I mean, we live in a day and age where the gospel, the message of the gospel gets twisted and manipulated into all sorts of things, doesn't it? I mean, it just gets manipulated and twisted, and it starts to mean a bunch of stuff that it was never really intended to mean. And before you know it, you've forgotten the true, real meaning of the gospel. So just to remind you as quickly and simply as I know how to say it, the gospel starts with an understanding that you and I are broken, fallen, messed up sinners who can't save ourselves, fix ourselves, and we're never going to measure up. And because we're sinners, we deserve death and we deserve hell. We deserve the wrath of God. Now, that sounds pretty horrible. That's where the gospel starts, right? If you're full of spiritual pride thinking, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm pretty good. I'm a nice... Listen, you don't understand the basic principle of the gospel, which starts with you're broken, you're fallen, you're sinful, you can't fix, you can't save yourself. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, um, God knows that. God said, no, no, I don't want my children to have death and hell as the result, and he sends Jesus. Jesus, his only son who goes to a cross, and he dies on a cross, and what's happening on the cross is he's absorbing the wrath of God that is poured out on our sin. Jesus takes our place. No longer do we have to have death and hell. We can have life, eternal life with him. It is the unmerited, unearned grace and favor of God poured out on sinners. That's the gospel. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. But in our day and age, what happens is it gets sort of manipulated and twisted into other things. It gets twisted into this prosperity gospel where it's like God wants you to you know, be healthy and wealthy all the time. It gets twisted into more of a self-help gospel where God wants you to be fully you and fix all your problems. It gets twisted into um, a particular stance on a social issue. It gets twisted into being a part of a particular political party as if, as if that's the way God always wants you to vote, right? It gets twisted into all sorts of stuff that's not the heart of the gospel, and before you know it, the gospel is forgotten. The gospel gets forgotten. And when the gospel gets forgotten... We're on our way to becoming a dead church. That's what happened in Sardis. They forgot what they had received. They forgot what they had heard, what the gospel is. Number two, we're on our way to becoming a dead church when the mission and the vision gets hijacked. The mission and the vision gets hijacked. So our mission here is centered on the gospel. We say that our mission is to love God and love people by living and sharing the gospel. So we want to love God, we want to love people, and we want to see the gospel penetrate and impact people's lives moving forward. That's what we want to be about. But when we forget that, when it gets hijacked, we start to just sort of get inwardly focused on us. Spend all of our time, energy, resources, everything's kind of about us. In the same way, our vision here has always been to engage and reach lost, disconnected, unchurched people. We think that that's what the church ought to be about. The way of Jesus was to seek and save the lost. So we think that the church ought to be about the same thing, seeking and saving the lost. And so when we launched uh, almost 13 years ago, this was at the heart of why we existed as a church. 
We said that we wanted to be a place where, where, where people, broken, hurting, sinful people, that maybe felt like church wasn't for them, maybe they had some impressions or opinions of the church, um, we wanted to be sort of new, fresh view of church. In fact, that's what our name means. Maybe some of you didn't even know that. We talk about this in Discover the Vista. The Vista, the name Vista literally means a new or a fresh view or a view to something larger. And that's what we wanted to be as a church. For a lot of people, a new and a fresh view of church, or more importantly, a view to something larger. That through us and the ministries of our church, people could see Jesus, right? So there you go. Our name actually means something, right? The Vista. And it's all about our vision of engaging and reaching lost, hurting, disconnected people. But what happens over time is if that, that vision gets hijacked, then you just become a place that's about appeasing church people, right? Where you start to sort of, again, it's not, it's not about engaging and reaching people outside the walls. It's about making sure everybody inside is happy and satisfied. So over time, it starts to be, well, you know, maybe you should change your music or maybe you should, you know, look a little nicer and look a little cleaner and neater and let's keep the riffraff out of here. You know, we got we to gotta look tidy. And so we clean things up and we just look the part, but we're no longer about the mission and the vision that God gave us as a church, Right? And so, it's really sad. Can I just tell you that we ought to always be a place where lost, hurting, broken, sinful people with messed up, messy lives feel loved, welcomed, and wanted in this place. And the minute we look around and those people aren't here, we are failing as a church. We've become Sardis, right? We're on our way to becoming a dead church. And so, the mission and the vision in so many churches just gets hijacked along the way, and it becomes more about appeasement than about mission. So the gospel gets forgotten, the mission vision gets hijacked. Number three, we're in danger of becoming a dead church when change is avoided constantly, right? When change is always avoided. Here's the thing. Living things change, dead things don't, right? Living things change, dead things don't. You're either living and growing and thriving and, or, you're, or you're dying or you're dead, right? Living things change, dead things don't. New life brings change. The best example I could give is with children, right? Some of you, many of you have children, but if when you have children, what changes? Everything, right? Everything changes when you have children. Your routine changes, your budget changes, your schedule changes, your sleep changes. Everything changes when you have kids. It's inconvenient, but here's the thing. You welcome the change, and you welcome the inconvenience. Why? Because there's new life, right? You welcome those things because there's new life and there's joy. And listen, it's the same thing in churches. It's the same thing in churches. Like being inconvenienced and, and being willing to accept some change. Listen, it's going to be messy. It's going to be inconvenient. But we welcome it because we want new life. And the problem for a lot of churches is they want new life and they want growth, but they don't want change. And it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Again, the definition of insanity that's really popular, right? Doing the same thing you've always done, but expecting different results. So we've got to be willing to accept change. And when a church is unwilling to accept change, there is a, a sort of constant or familiar pattern that churches follow. And it usually starts out like a church that gets going early on. We see this in the book of Acts and with most new churches. It starts out as this very vibrant movement of God, right? 
It's a movement, man. God's work and God's move and God's, I mean, there's just, it's messy and it's out of control, yes, but it's a movement of God that cannot be contained. And then as you grow a little bit, you get into organization. That's the next step, organization. Nothing wrong with organization. In fact, organization is necessary, and when done right, it enhances the movement. So you get some systems and some structures, and it's, it helps the movement move forward and gain some traction. So organization is great. That's kind of the next step. Then what happens is a lot of times if you're unwilling to change and adapt, then you get into institution mode. Institution mode is where you no longer really look forward. It's about looking back. No longer are you looking forward going, what kind of vision does God have for us? Where is God leading? Then it simply becomes, let's, let's protect what we've built. Let's just protect and let's defend what we have. So it's about, you know, setting these fences or roadblocks, barriers. You set up kind of policies. And, and ultimately, again, it's not about looking forward. It's about looking back and defending and protecting. And then when you get to that point and you're unwilling to change and adapt, you're really one step away from the final part, and that's just museum, right? That's what churches, you become a museum where uh, basically it's, you're not an active center of worship and ministry. You're more of just kind of a relic to the past. You're the place people go and look in and go, oh, this is how it used to be, right? And so we don't want to go from movement to museum. So the question again for us is how do we avoid going from movement to museum? And one of the things we've got to be aware of is that change is necessary. Now, as I get older, I understand that change is hard, Right? I feel like it's just, we're, pre, we're, we're like predisposed to resist change. As, we just don't like it. But again, living things change. Living things grow. Dead things do not. And, and if we're going to not become Sardis, not become the dead church, we've got to be willing to adapt and accept some change. The fourth thing that I wrote down, the final thing I wrote down is, we're in danger of becoming a dead church when you have more consumers than contributors. You have more consumers than contributors. Consumers are the people that sort of, um, they just sort of come and absorb a religious product, but they're not really participants in the life and the body of the church. So um, maybe people that, again, they come, they check their boxes, they're here, but, but outside of that, there's not really any contribution to the life of the church. Now, a couple things I would say here. One is I want to be careful because my goal is not to hide, pile on, heap on a bunch of guilt. I know there are people here that have been at places where they've been deeply wounded and hurt by church. They've been sort of chewed up and spit out. I've talked to former pastors in our church that this is just a season and a place of healing for them, and we want to welcome that. We want to welcome that. Maybe you need to attend. You need to absorb for a while. But some of you, and you know who you are, just attending one hour a week, week after week after week, but never really contributing outside of that, you just can, over time, even unintentionally, become a consumer. You just become a consumer. You're, you're a taker, not a giver right? And when a church finds itself with a lot of consumers and no real contributors, then you're on the road. You're in danger of becoming a dead church over time. And so we want to be careful. We want to be avoiding that. In fact, it's this very question that our staff began to ask ourselves as we got to about a decade old. We started going, wait, are we, are we making disciples or are we making consumers? And we went, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. How, do we, how do we judge that? I mean, how do we even tell, Right? And, and, and a lot of those conversations for us is what helped us put in place something we've really tried to focus on this year, and that is our discipleship pathway. Our discipleship pathway, we tried to make it really, simp, uh, really simple, really short, really concise, really easy to remember. 
Um, it, is, it is just a way to sort of gauge and judge whether we're actually cranking out and making disciples or we're just creating a bunch of consumers. So it, it, it's, it's, you know, worship, connect, give, and serve. Those things we talk about all the time. Worship, connect, give, and serve. And those are, that's our simple just discipleship pathway, how we know, how you can kind of gauge, am I really becoming a contributor and, and participating in the life of the church, or am I just becoming... So things like pederasty, an older man having sex with a teenage boy, which was the most common form of same-sex behavior in the ancient world. And as I hope you can tell, um, it is a fairly complicated issue. And that's why you need to do your homework on this. And I'd like to begin by sharing a little bit of the journey that I've been on as I've tried to process this whole issue and do it honestly, faithfully, and biblically. Um, Like most of you, I I grew up with the traditional view on this and never really did any homework on it because I was just so sure I was right. But that all changed for me when um, the student I mentioned reached out to me And he asked me to help him discern what he should do. And I realized that I was an unreliable guide because I had not done my homework on this. I had opinions, but my opinions far outpaced the homework I had done. And so I said, well, man, let's do this. Um, Let's go on a journey together where, where we read a book, the best book we can find from the traditional perspective. And then we read the best book we can find from the affirming perspective. We read God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. And then we just be honest with each other about what we find, about what's persuasive, about what's not persuasive. And it was a very, very humbling journey for me, a year-long journey. It's a gross, awful thing that like Satan snuck in there when God wasn't looking. And it's also not, um, it's not something that's to be, to be worshipped as like the supreme thing that life is about. Um, but it is a good gift from God. And as a good gift, um, there's... There's, there's different ways to perceive a gift. I would say that an immature person perceives gifts very different than a mature person. An immature person um, primarily looks at gifts um, and says, I'm entitled to that. They are for me, my benefit, right? Like, so when I was a kid, Christmas time, my birthday, I expected a gift. It was all about Dave. It was about Dave getting his gifts. That's what an immature person thinks of gifts. They're for me and I'm entitled to those gifts. A mature person thinks of gifts as something that they get to give and bless someone else with. And so as I matured, um, it's no longer, you know, Christmas morning, where's all my presents? Kids, get out of the way. It's, where's daddy's presents, right? Some of you may be like that, and I don't know, you're immature. Um, but <laughs> gifts become something that you, you look forward to being able to give and being able to bless someone else with. And so um, to that, here's what I would say, um, that within marriage, each if each spouse's primary focus is uh, giving that gift um, rather than just simply receiving it and feeling entitled to that, um, then sex is a gift that you can give your spouse even if you're both not feeling super passionate or in the mood all of the time. Because let's be honest, if you wait to only have sex, and Tim Keller says this in his book, Meaning of Marriage, if you wait to only have sex when you're both feeling super passionate and always in the mood, you probably aren't gonna have a lot of sex, right? Once or twice, I think. Maybe, right? (laughs) Um, but if your primary goal is, is a blessing or giving that gift, then, then you can have intimacy and sex even if you're not feeling completely and totally in the mood. You can give that gift when, whenever you uh, want to, to do that. And so uh, hopefully that kind of helps um, 
this idea of one person wanting to have sex more often, not seeing it as something that's just for me and I deserve it. I, you know, it, it's a gift that I can choose to give um, regardless of how I always feel. And finally, I would just say this. I say this to all uh, couples that meet with me for pre-marriage counseling. Um, in regards to intimacy, I would just say be very patient with one another uh, when it comes to sex. It's, it often takes time, years even, to develop the right chemistry, to learn to uh, mutually benefit one another uh, sexually. The movies make it seem like it should all just be sort of easy and natural and, and, and like music kind of kicks on Barry in the background whenever, yeah. right? Um, and we know that's, not, that's just not reality. That's just not the way that it is. So learn to be patient uh, with one another. Um, you can kind of see there, uh, it's people coming together and Christ with the crown, the king, he is central. He is central. He is the one that they're worshiping. He's the one they're surrounding. He's the one that, that gets their affection and their love because at the end of the day, when it comes to unity in the church, Christ is what brings the unity. Our love and affection and our faith in him is what unifies us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. The second point that I would say about unity is this, that unity is going to require a certain degree of compromise. Unity is going to require a certain degree of compromise. Now, we can't compromise on everything, right? If we compromise on everything, then we're not the church. So we've got to figure out what is worth fighting for and what is not worth fighting for. And that is a challenge sometimes. That's a challenge in all churches, in all churches. One of the things that we've said here, we've done this, used this analogy for years. We didn't come up with it. I'm sure other churches use it as well. But we would say it this way, that we think a healthy church needs to have a closed hand and an open hand. A closed hand and an open hand. In the closed hand are going to be those things that we cannot budge on. They are the things that essentially um, are hills to die on. They are the things that make us Christian. They are basic uh, theological, doctrinal, orthodox Christian beliefs, right? So in the closed hand goes stuff like the substitutionary atonement of Jesus at the cross for our sin. There is no other way to salvation, no other way to heaven but by him. That's not something we can really budge on, right? That's just, that's pretty much, if you don't believe that, then you're not Christian. The, the doctrine of the, of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, that is a distinctly Christian belief. There's not a fourth or fifth member of the Trinity, right? Your grandpa was really great. He's not a part of the Trinity, right? Your favorite author who writes those really great books, not a part of the Trinity, right? Like, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a doctrine that we're going to hold to, that we're going to believe. When the Bible calls something sin, we don't get to just all of a sudden declare that it's not sin, right? That's, there's some stuff that goes in our closed hand, but hear me, there's also a lot of stuff that ought to go in our open hand. In the open hand are things that we can disagree on, we don't have to see eye to eye at all, but we can still have unity because they're not essential. They're not essential. And we have a, we have a big open hand here at Vista. And I'm, I'm proud of that. A lot of the secondary doctrinal stuff that we can, just, we can disagree on all day but still maintain unity, things like Calvinism or Arminianism, or even if you know what those isms are, right? Like, those go in the open hand. Both groups believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus at the cross. We talked this summer about um, egalitarian versus complementarian. And again, maybe you don't even know what those things are. You can check the podcast from the summer, right? But like... But like your beliefs on where you stand on some of that stuff, that's open-handed. We get it. There's different views. Matters of eschatology, like that's end times theology. We don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, whatever things going to look like specifically when Jesus comes back again. Jesus is coming back. 
close-handed. The Bible says it, right? What that's going to look like at the end of, I don't know and you don't either, right? So why do we need to spend a bunch of time debating and arguing about different philosophies and views? For us, that's open-handed. It's open-handed. There's matters that are practical, you know, style and culture and dress and some of that stuff. It all goes in the open hand. Listen, if you want to wear a suit to the Vista because that's what you feel, that's the way you feel like you ought to come to church, you know, wear the suit. I will not be wearing one, right? But you are welcome to do that, right? You're welcome to do that. There's a lot of stuff that goes in our open hand. So we have to decide what goes in the closed, what goes in the open hand. And here's what happens is sometimes when you get your really fundamentalist churches, they generally have two closed hands, right? They have two closed hands. It's like, love Jesus and do it like this, or you're wrong. Austin says it this way in our Discover the Vista class. They have two closed fists and they like to punch you in the face with them, right? That's, that's what happens with the fundamentalist churches. But then you get your liberal churches and the more liberal, then you have two open hands, right? Then it's like, everybody's loved, welcomed, wanted, come as you are, that's all great. That's an environment we love. But if, then it's like, you know, what you believe is also kind of up in the air. It's may not really, you know, we can have discussions around everything. And, and then you fail to be the church. You're a really welcoming and inviting social organization but you're not the church. And so the challenge has always been a closed hand and an open hand. And so we work really hard here to maintain that. And again, that brings me to my last point, that unity means love despite your differences. It's not washing away or sweeping under the rug all the differences. It's learning to love one another in spite of your differences. It's learning to love one another despite the fact that you are going to have a lot of things in your open hand that you don't necessarily see eye to eye on. And Austin and I have really tried to model this here at the Vista because, if, I mean, some of you already know this. If you know either one of us very well at all, there's a whole lot of stuff in the open hand that we don't agree on. We actually come at it from very different points of view. But listen, we want to model unity and love for brothers and sisters in Christ that says, listen, you don't have to think just like I do on everything. Our unity is in Christ. Our unity is found in Christ. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that's enough to bring us together in unity and love, and it's a picture to the rest of the community and the rest of the world of what it means to find unity in Christ and love one another deeply. In Acts 15, such a pivotal chapter because ultimately they came out of this thing saying, no, 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 we're not gonna let all this secondary stuff divide the movement. We're not going to let all the secondary stuff stop the revolution. God is doing something in the hearts and lives of people. So we don't need to argue about stuff that's really not essential and not a hill to die on. We need to have unity together in Christ. And that's our hope, that's our prayer, that's our vision, that's our goal for our church. Let's pray together. Father, we are... um, God, we're so thankful for the diversity that you bring to the church. God, we're just grateful that we're not all alike. We're not all alike. That you bring people together from different walks of life, different cultures, different races, different socioeconomic status, different political points of view. God, you bring people together that would otherwise never get in a room together. But God, it is... Jesus, who brings these people together, and that is where we find our unity. So God, I pray that we would always be a church that finds our unity in Christ, that we would not get caught arguing and 
and in fighting over non-essential, open-handed stuff where Satan just tries to distract us and, and get us off of our mission. Lord, I pray today for God, all of us as a church, to remember that it is the grace of Jesus alone that saves us. It is not about our self-righteousness and how good we can be. God, you have, you have certainly given us works to do. There are certainly works that you have prepared in advance for us to be a part of. But God, those aren't things we do in order to earn or gain favor with you. Those are things we do because we already have. So Lord, I pray that we would walk in that. We would live our lives as a response to your great mercy and your great love for us. We're thankful today for the grace of Jesus displayed at the cross and that there is no work left to be done for our salvation. Help us to walk in unity together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We want to invite you and encourage you to uh, just have a brief time of response. Uh, Jared and the band are gonna lead us in a song. Maybe you wanna spend some time where you are with the Lord in prayer, confession, repentance. Maybe you wanna stand, sing, celebrate, worship Jesus, our resurrected King. Maybe you wanna take communion where you remember the body and the blood of Christ broken and shed for you at the cross. You're welcome to make your way to one of our communion tables during this song. Take a piece of the bread that represents the body of Christ. Dip that there in the juice that represents the blood of Christ. And just be thankful for the grace of Christ that saves you. Maybe you want to talk or pray with someone. There'll be someone back there in front of the sound booth. Be happy to talk with you or pray with you. Maybe you want to give an offering. However you want to respond this morning, we just want to give you a little bit of time to do that. Thanks again for being here.